0: Hey, Straight Talk on Leadership listeners, this week's episode will be part two of Dean and Kelly's conversation on what's next, the aftermath of the Derek Chauvin guilty verdict on law enforcement. Be sure to check out next week's finale episode, part three. Thank you for listening. So sit back, relax, and get ready to change your life. Hi, I'm Dean Chris. Welcome to Straight Talk on Leadership. This is what we'd like to say is the no BS zone, where we give you leadership tips, ideas, and practical suggestions to help you become a top leadership performer. Our goal is simple. Help you become the best version of yourself and reach your highest potential as a leader. So sit back, turn up the volume, and you're ready to change your life. People are feelings first, facts later oriented. Mm-hmm. That's because mm-hmm. the limbic system in our brain drives the fact that we want to feel things. If we feel it, we believe it. We, we, but cops have always been facts and then feelings. You know, if you look at the, uh, Joe Friday series that yes. was on back <laughs> in the 60s, you know, it was just a fact. Dragnet. Man, just a facts, man. Just a facts. Man. Jack, yeah. yeah. Dragnet. Man. And, and it literally, you know, changed the course of the way people thought about cops and cops responded. I can remember back in the 80s. As a matter of fact, there were several FBI programs. LEADS is one of them, Law Enforcement Executive Development. And uh, you have NEI, which is National Executive Institute, and you have the FBI and A. They were yes. actually attempts to professionalize police departments because there was no national standard of professionalization. And so the FBI literally created these leads is for agencies with 50 people to 500 NEIs for agencies over 500. And the NA is an individual program for police officers and above the rank of lieutenant to go and spend 10 or 11 weeks in DC or at uh, Quantico.
1: Right. And
0: those programs were actually created because law enforcement, the perception of law enforcement was so bad. Uh, you had the Southern sheriff, the, Good old boy, the corruptness of LAPD or in Detroit or Chicago or New York, the Warren Commission, uh, you know, all those things that came out in the 70s, there was a major uh, perception issue with law enforcement. Now, this is not the first negative perception issue that we've had of law enforcement. If you look at post-civil, well, uh, post-civil unrest, yeah, the civil rights area, law enforcement was not seen as being a a really good you know, thing to be in. And then there kind of becomes this time period where that changes. And then you have uh, the 90s where technology is becoming, and, and we're convincing people that through technology we're going to be better, which did happen to some degree, but not really. Compu- Listen, I, I was a police chief when the first computers were put in cars. Yeah. And the premise in which computers were put in cars was simple this is going to get the police officers on the street and with the public more and spend less time on report writing. To be honest with you, it did the opposite. It literally took cops out of communities. Yeah. I mean, and it, and it kept them tied to a machine, not a person. So, you know, we went through these iterations or these what I call evolutions and and they're more like iterations because we don't really learn from them sometimes, but now what's going to have to happen in law enforcement, we've got to have an evolution. We, we've literally have to have an evolution of ideas and an evolution of things are not going to be the same. And, and so when you look at it, you know, the one thing that's important for people to understand and, and parallel law enforcement to your own life, we are slow to change. I don't care what it is. There is very few things in life that creates an instantaneous change. Right. You now You know, I'd love to hear people's uh, if you can send me uh, the podcast, LHLN.org, send us an email. Uh, tell me things that are instantaneously changed and they stay that way. There right. are not many things that that change instantaneously and then they just stay that way. Right. We develop over time. They're, they're evolutionary, if you will. They they go from stage one to stage two to stage three. But what happens is, is that you've got this forced structural concrete change that people want to have in law enforcement, all based on an emotional feeling connectivity. And that is really hard to do. Like you're wanting people to change based on public opinion.
1: What do you think is driving Uh the, I mean, I I have a hard time and I feel like I'm a pretty Uh avid consumer of news. And it's very hard for even me to figure out exactly what the end game is here with the Uh anti-police movement that you see in the country. Um, Like, for example, the Brooklyn Heights situation I'm a former assistant city administrator. I was actually very troubled um, that the city administrator simply went out there and said, look, we want due process for everybody involved here and was fired, fired for saying something that we should all as Americans embrace wholeheartedly for anybody involved in a, certain, in a circumstance like that. And, and so I can't figure out the end game. It's like, is it, is it to completely eliminate police? I I don't know the answer to that question. I'm throwing it to you to say what I mean, we're trying to give them solutions to have substantive change. But then I think where a lot of these guys and gals on the street are is they feel like any wrong move they make, it is literally the difference between um, life and death and having their life, even if they are still living, fundamentally changed forever. You were just in Boulder, and um, I knew that they had proposed it. Did not realize that they had passed it, but they have qualified immunity out there now. They've eliminated a good bit no, of that.
0: Well, they've eliminated right? qualified immunity in Colorado, but yes. it's—I mean, people, uh, if you understand what qualified immunity is—and I'm not a lawyer. I'm, I'm, you know, I just stayed in a Holiday and expressed, so mm-hmm. you know that way I've got all the brain power, I guess, but. <laughs> But, you know, being being funny, but uh, qualified immunity just basically means that if you're in performance of your duty and you're doing things that you should be doing, where you should be, how you should be doing it, that if you do it reasonably and you do it without malice and negligence and those type things, that you literally can get judgments, a case thrown out against you simply by the fact that being where you were, you're required to be there. You're doing your job. It's what expected of cops that you have this qualified immunity, which means they can't sue you. And when you look at qualified immunity, it is a great um, it's a great screen for cops to uh, stop all these frivolous, crazy lawsuits that someone might have uh, simply because you uh, said something to them that they maybe didn't like. Uh, It it just it's a way to prevent frivolous lawsuits. And when you get rid of it, you're just going to slam the court system. But now what? what's happening in Colorado is that the police officer has to pay the first $25,000. So if they have a judgment against them and uh, the qualified immunity is not met and they actually are found that they're negligent and they have to pay, say the city pays, you know, 200,000 or 300,000, whatever the officer actually literally has to pony up 25,000 out of their pockets. Now, you know, I would recommend that you look on the internet and look on the Colorado Law Enforcement Qualified Immunity to find out all the details of that. I'm not trying to give them all to you, but that has certainly caused a lot of problems for law enforcement officers to have to pony up $25,000 of their own dollars. And now there's a question of who's going to represent them. Do they have to pay for their own attorneys? Do the city? And there's just a mess there. And that's going to be, uh, have a major impact on law enforcement throughout the country uh, but that's only, uh, qualified immunity is still a national federal standard. It's not one in the state of Colorado. So what they actually did was took the states right away from them. So you can sue them through the state system and people know you can be sued in state court or federal. So now people are suing cops in the state system because they know qualified immun- immunity is gone. And so when you look at that, so, so you know, that case has caused a lot of issues out there. there there's absolutely, and that's just a a symptom of a bigger problem, but you asked the question about the end game. Yeah. Now I'm not sure what the end, I'm not sure what their, uh, or what the uh, people's end game is when they want to do away with police. And there's no way to generalize a, a whole movement's end game, because to be honest with you, I'm not sure they know, but if you leave, if you read the the mantra of black lives matter, uh, they're wanting social justice and they're wanting things like that, which some of those things are, you know, reasonable expectations of law enforcement and reasonable expectations of of the world. But what generally happens is, is that people pile on like 15 other things, you know, and, and you can never yes. reach any of it. It's yeah. like a bill goes through the House. By the time it gets to the Senate, it might be a bill on climate change. But it's just like the one it has got there. It's got like, you know, two hundred trillion dollars going to social justice change. What's that got to do with climate change? I mean. You know, it's Precisely. like, well, it's the end game there. It's it's very it's very, very crazy. But when when you look at what, so what's how, going on how here, is you- it,
1: how, do, how is a chief or uh, even just the actual road cop handle that circumstance? I mean, to me, just the mental load alone every day of wondering, God, I hope nobody shoots someone tonight or I hope there's no altercation that results in in our department now being under the microscope, you know, how, how do you deal with that mental load? I mean, you, you've been there um, as a chief of police. Well, and- uh,
0: I mean, but let's be honest. I mean, nobody can carry that type of mental load every single day and be functional and be good because it's just really tough to do. So you have to put that in the background. It's like walking around knowing you're getting ready to get shot. You, nobody can do that. I mean, you can't do your job. You, because every corner becomes the shooting corner, every corner becomes the death corner. You can't do it. It's just, your brain paralyzes, and that's what's happening right now, is that we're literally paralyzed because we're not sure what to do. And and listen, no cop ever took the oath with the understanding they could be um, become viral in a second and become like you know right. this uh, face for change or whatever it is in law enforcement. Now, in my opinion, uh, Derek Chauvin has become the villain of the 21st century. Uh, He has become the social villain, if you will, especially in the United States. Uh, He's been vilified and rightfully so from the standpoint of the case and the actions he did and being found guilty of three. uh, I don't know of any police officer that's ever been found guilty of three counts of murder in one case. I, I don't know that I've ever heard of that. But Derek Chauvin will forever be the first vilified police officer of the 21st century, where literally his name is famous as LeBron James's. That that is ridiculous to think that a police officer can have that much notoriety by a act that uh, you know of, of where they take the life of another person. That is, uh, I mean, that is uh, you know nobody wants that. Nobody wants to. To do that. But when you take this job on, you literally have the potential of becoming viral. You have the potential of being vilified, even when you do what you'd perceive to be right.
1: I mean, I was just going to say go back to the Ferguson case. Um, that officer, even though the um, solicitor, who I actually personally know, Bob Ariel at the time, he's a Democrat, but he is a very, he's always been a very fair, very, Follow the facts, kind of guy. And as you know, when he convened a grand jury, he could have very easily filed charges, but he followed the facts, and as a result, that grand jury did not find any reason to indict that officer in that case for all of the other facts that you mentioned came out later, and yet his life was literally ruined. It was ruined. But he had acted. But that's the power
0: of. But that's, that's the power, power of social media. media battle
1: that's the media. Well, it, yeah. I mean it,
0: it's not so much the media, it's everybody. It's Facebook, it's Instagram, it's TikTok. It's Let's take a short break from the show and we'll be right back.
2: Hey, Straight Talk listeners, this is Kelly Corvin, Director of Business Development here at LHLN, just wanting to highlight one of our signature courses, Intentional Leadership. Many of you have taken that class, but many of you have not. And I just wanted to let you know that it is two and a half days of action-packed, next-level leadership development. I don't care where you are on your journey. You can be starting out as a supervisor or at the executive level. You will learn the new way to lead in the 21st century from one of the top leadership influencers, Dean Crisp. Learn more about that class, where it's being hosted this year, or request to host a class at www.lhln.org
1: i so, mean everybody's the so speak the media to man. that i mean so speak to that then if you know put yourself in the in the position of any of these chiefs of police that you deal with weekly and how do you how do you lead your people in this kind of an environment
0: well i, I mean i'm with police officers everyday and, and I'm, I'm either in the classroom with them, having discussions with them at a break. Uh, I, I'm probably talking to police officers more than their chiefs are talking to them, not from the standpoint of, you know, leading them and doing the job. And I'm not trying to say I'm, I'm doing better, you know, than the chiefs are doing or whatever. Right. I'm just saying I'm talking to cops. I listen to cops. I hear what they're saying all over the country. Uh, yeah. You know, I have I have a I have a unique opportunity. I, I literally have a front row seat to change across the country because I'm somewhere every week in a new environment. Like I was just in Colorado hearing about qualified immunity. You know, now next week I'll be in Hartford hearing about the challenge they're dealing with. So I I mean, that it's a unique perspective. But the one thing that is constant is, is that cops are genuinely, to be honest with you, heartbroken Mm -hmm. and they're heartbroken because they have a belief In this job, they love helping people and they love what they do. And they have a just cause that is crazy good that not many people would do. Put your life on the line for somebody you don't know. Put your family on the line for somebody you don't know. Put your whole mental, physical health in jeopardy by dealing with all the things you have to deal with. Pick a baby up who's crying Take somebody out in the middle of the street, run towards gunfire, wear a vest to work because you might get shot. I mean, they're they're generally they love what they do, and they're literally heartbroken that, uh, but they're not they they're not dissuaded, and that's the good thing. They they're emotionally, uh, you know, they they're certainly hurt by the from what I hear from cops, and I'm not trying to be a spokesperson for all cops. But people are genuinely, uh, you know what? They just, their feelings are that they love what they're doing. Right. And when they love what they're doing, they would run into a, a gunfire. If there was a, um, if there was an active shooter, uh, active intruder, active harmer, whatever you want to call them. Uh, when those cops show up, they're coming in the building. They're not standing outside and saying, well, let's wait till they shoot everybody. Hell, they're running into gunfire. And that's and right. Listen. Uh, And they're picking the pieces up these wrecks and they're, they're doing all these things where these people, they're picking up these pieces on domestic violence and they're the the negotiator and the the mitigator and the mediator in all kinds of bad situations. And they're really just emotionally kind of like stunned if you will, because of the backlash, but they're not dissuaded from doing their job. That's the great thing is, is they're so determined. And what I see with cops is they're like, You know, we know it. But but, you know, leaders have to give them some guidance. And we're going to talk about some of that in a little bit. But I'm going to give you an example of how how slow law enforcement is to change and how difficult it is to change law enforcement. And there's been one case that I believe has probably caused more. um, I'm not I don't know exactly the right word, more scrutiny on law enforcement. Than any other case ever is the knife versus the gun. Mm. Like, if somebody's mm-hmm. wielding a knife, do you shoot them? Right. And, You know, that, th- that is such a tough call. You know, it's like the knife versus the gun. And, and, and I've been in those situations where, uh, thank God I didn't have to shoot. We persuaded the individual to drop the knife. I've been in a situation where a person's had a brick trying to attack us, ball bat, shotgun. I mean, all those kind of things, you know, and I certainly was thankful that we we're able to, you know, get them to put those weapons down. But, but there's, not, there's nothing that's created more controversy in law enforcement than the knife versus gun. And that really literally – that rule was taught in the early '80s by a guy by the name a guy by the name of Dennis Tuler. Right. A lot of people don't even know what the twenty one foot rule is, but Dennis yes. Tuler, a sergeant at the at the Utah uh, at, at Salt Lake City, Utah, uh, does some testing on his own about uh, what's the thing called a reactionary gap. How long does it take you to shoot someone who may be attacking you? So they get they do at least three or four drills. One of them is they get back to back and see how far you can run away. And then mm-hmm. they get face to face and see how far, how fast you can close the gap. And, and what they do is they come up with this thing proposed The 21 feet is about the distance that takes 1.5 seconds. And it takes that long for an officer to fire a gun. And so he does this drill. He writes about it in this SWAT magazine. In 1983. And so then all these law enforcement officers kind of pick up this. Well, good God, we got to close this reactionary gap. Somebody's got a knife within 21 feet, man. I got to shoot them. And man, that takes hold in law enforcement. Like, yeah, I remember. I mean, I remember getting used to force training with that uh, being cited. And now what you're seeing is, is you're seeing actual video showing that a person with a knife may not be that much of a threat. Now, uh, to justify shooting them, gunning them down right then, but I'm not talking about this case that just occurred where the 16-year-old, now that, um, I mean, the officers are taught, you know, can protect the life of others, property, and themselves. Uh, That officer, uh, I I mean, it's unfortunate. A 16-year-old living in a foster home uh, gets out of control emotionally, has a knife, tries to stab another person, and is shot by police let me tell you something. There is nothing good about that. There is no. no fact in that case that is good. No, no fact. And you that's, that's a tragic incident that law enforcement officers, and I hope that officers still use their best judgments regarding. And if that, if he had hesitated, uh, then there's no doubt. Somebody
1: would have um, died. I mean they even had um, they had camera footage from one of the neighbors across the street in that incident that pretty much validated that. And then they interviewed two or three of the neighbors that were familiar with the young woman who passed away that um, wielded the knife. And I actually just texted you, there's a a thing playing by Irish Angel where they actually are showing the training exercise where a cop is is basically confronting somebody with a knife and they shove them and back up. And before they can draw their weapon, whether it be a taser or a gun, the knife guy is on them and literally could stab them right through the chest or stomach or whatever. Um, so it's, it's a tough call. I mean, it really is. When those guys are faced with that, they sometimes have split second decisions. And I guess what I try to do is to tell people, look, yes, we have to get rid of the bad cops. But for the most part, most of these guys and gals out there are doing the very best they can. And they're making decisions that none of us would want to be in the position of having to make at any point. They see stuff none of us ever see in our lifetime. And I hope Well, I never remember
0: knew. that. Well, and, and do remember, though, that the second you see it on video, your eyes begin to draw a picture of what you think. Correct.
1: Happens. Yes. But you, you don't know to-
0: all the facts. Yeah. <clears throat> you don't know all the facts. And, and my point being that uh, you don't know all the facts leading up to that incident. You don't know, you know what happened. You just kind of see the event as it occurs. But even after you get the facts, you still cannot. Mitigate the emotional connection of the awfulness of taking someone's life, even justified. Right. You you know what I mean? You don't you don't ever lose that emotional attachment to witnessing someone die or an animal or whatever it is. It's still death. And 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 that's the thing that like if if you don't it's like I'll give you an example of the, the power of that emotional attachment. I want you to think about the people out there that are listening. I want you to think about a time when somebody said something something to you that kicked you off or made you mad. And how long does it take to get over that? Well, every time you see that person, you kind of remember that. And every time, it's like I always say: if you have a bad encounter with the boss, you have to realize that never goes away. Right. That person's always going to remember that. Why? Because. When you see something that emotionally connects to you, your brain literally files it in a file that you do not forget it. And so your preconceived idea of how that occurred is actually convinces you that's the way it is. Now, you can get facts to mitigate it and say, well, the person, I didn't know this, I didn't know that. Okay, I get it. But you still have the feeling of awful. And one of the things that a lot of people don't realize about law enforcement is a lot of times what's lawful looks awful. Correct. Uh, I mean, literally literally, just handcuffing somebody and taking their liberties is not something that's pretty once you see it happening. But, you know, and stuffing somebody in a car or whatever it is, I mean, there's the extreme cases where we, uh, you, you know, there are the extreme cases where we want people to actually, um, how can I say it? Um, you know, if you just arrest a a child molester or somebody's just killed four or five kids or, you know, wreaked havoc. And that person gets killed by the police. You're like, okay, I get it, man. You saved you know, you saved a lot of trouble. And, and although that's (laughs) a bad thing to say, but that's a bad thing to say, but you have that emotional connection to it. You're like, that's not a good way to feel, but you feel it, you know, you mitigate that. So emotions are way stronger than facts. And what law enforcement, what we got to understand is, is that we have to respond emotionally instead of factually. And so there, there was actually a study done. Well, go ahead. Go ahead. No, no to I just something. was going to so ask.
1: I was going to transition to, you know, how, how would you suggest they go about that? But go with your study first. I want to hear about the study you're going to talk about.
0: No, there was actually a, a study talked about people that uh, literally, uh when a person does a news conference, uh like when is when are they most believable? Because one of the things that you have to understand about being a chief or being a leader is is that no matter what the facts, the feelings are, you always want to be authentic. Right. And so they they did a study about judging how the public reacted to what people did. And there there was a case where they gave, the, they gave the people the set of circumstances. They said, this is actually what's happened. Now, we want you to watch their explanation of it, and they're going to give them ways to respond to it, and we want to know what you think. And then there was an actual study where they looked at companies, and the CEO had actually had something bad that occurred that would draw into question the company or to make them look not credible or whatever happened and they watched the ceo and then they watched the stock price of the company where it went up or down right and what they found was very interesting they found that when you're in an incident like uh let's say the shooting uh, well any shooting they found that And they didn't use a shooting in the study, but let's say, for example, a company uh, makes something that injures people, okay? And they found that when a CEO actually came on or the spokesperson came on and was really, really positive, in other words, said, we know we made a mistake, but now we're going to fix it and everything's going to be great towards the future, that literally the stock price went down. Interesting. they asked... Well, they asked people, why is that? Why did, why, did stock, why did you not like that? And they said, because we wanted the person to feel the badness. We wanted the, the person yeah. who was telling us to feel sorry for what happened. We don't want to hear a positive spin on it. This is a bad thing. We want them to say it's a bad thing. So the stock price went down. So then they did one where they were non-emotional, non-connective, and just basically went out and said the facts. And they noticed that the same movement kind of happened, not as bad as when they were positive, but the same movement, the stock price trended downward. And then they did one where the individual actually saw, the individual actually came out and felt the pain and expressed the pain of what the incident had caused. For example, hey, we know, we're sorry. Now, if you watched, uh, there was a the press conference where the, the young girl was was shot by the police officer recently. If you watched that chief's press conference, he actually came out and said, there is absolutely nothing good about this situation. We got a 16-year-old who was shot. We got a child with a knife. We got a child killed. We got a cop who had to shoot that. There's absolutely nothing good about this. We feel the pain of the family. Well, what they found out was when someone actually did that, their stock prices went up. And what that proves is, is that people want you to be authentic and they want you to feel the sadness of what's happened. And somehow that convinces people that you literally are going to do something about it. Because Mm -hmm. remember now, you feeling the same thing they feel convinces them that you care about them. Now, you got to remember, let's go back to... Let's go back to the number one thing about leadership is this. I don't care who you are. I don't care where you're from. I don't care if you lead two people or 200,000 people. The one fact that every one of them people in that company want to know or business or agency want to know is this. As a leader, do you care about? If they don't think you care about them, they don't care. They will never connect to you or the agency. Mm -hmm. And so they want to know, do you care about me? So the one thing that we're doing as cops is we literally – are not passing on those feelings because number one, we've been taught, be factual, don't be emotional. And so when you are nothing but factual, you tend to not let the other person believe you care. So in other words, what happens is, is that you're thinking linearly, they're thinking holistically, and there's no connection. Thank you for listening to Straight Talk on Leadership with Dean Crisp. Make sure you like and subscribe to the podcast so that you don't miss an episode. You can go to www.lhln.org to find upcoming classes where you can book Dean for his new class. And you can also check out his new book, Essential Leadership Lessons from the Thin Blue Line. Thanks again, and we'll see you next time.